Welcome to the only audio you need. This is episode 123 of the podcast. Uh, even though it's its inaugural episode, it actually identifies as episode 123. And I, I really believe that the intrinsic properties of, of anything really don't have a lot to do with what that thing is. So this being the inaugural episode doesn't really matter. I mean, I, I, I believe that it should be called episode 123. Um, and really anything else that, you know, has some kind of intrinsic quality or property that for histories has been called a specific thing or has been known as a specific thing really doesn't have anything to do with what that thing is. So welcome to the inaugural episode, episode 123. I, I recently heard a number that the U.S. could end homelessness for just $20 billion, which does sound like a lot of money, but you have to put it in perspective that our military spending currently is right around $750 billion. But I, I really don't see the need to end homelessness when you really get down to it. We really should be spending more money on the military. I think that the military should honestly look like they're trying to help the Avengers. Because, I mean, if you think about it, what, what would the lack of homeless people do in a war against Galactus or Thanos? How, how, is, how is that really going to save humanity? The current U.S. military budget would probably only be able to handle the threat of something like the first Avengers movie. But we really need to think about the possibility of endgame type scenarios. Maybe even more so, since we don't have an Avengers-like team to fill in some of those gaps. I just don't understand how we can keep making shitty multi-billion dollar floating fortresses that patrol the world's seas and have the firepower to level almost any country on Earth. That should not be our focus. The seas become obsolete so quickly once the aliens arrive with interstellar spacecraft. We need multi-trillion dollar flying death machines that can and will level planets. At this point, I'm, I'm kind of thinking that our safest option would be to have a crossover-like scenario between every Marvel movie and every Star Wars movie when it comes to defense. We need like a, like a, like a Death Star-type defense apparatus, ideally larger than the moon, that is equipped with like thousands of military personnel enhanced with genetic manipulation, manipulations or some shit that turns them into like master chief like super soldiers. I I just I can't fathom why we aren't spending all of Earth's resources on something like this. We need stronger weapons. I, I just don't understand. What does it matter if your grandmother has no savings at 80 years old because she can't afford her glaucoma medication? What does that really matter? She isn't going to do anything in a fight against the real Marvin the Martian. What does it matter if, if Flint still doesn't have clean water and if China is engaged in ethnic cleansing? Combating these issues will not stop our inevitable destruction by an alien threat. Frankly, we should forego all those concerns and at the very least double our military spending. Like, currently, we're not even at historic military spending highs. We were dropping more cash fighting tribes in the deserts of Iraq. I understand that it's often easier to sell a war against the Middle East than a war against aliens. But, I mean, after the successes of the Marvel franchise, I think that the American people are ready. Those were essentially propaganda films for how important it is to fight against uh, like all threats that face the human race, real or imagined. 
I just feel like right now we uh, we're more we're, we're we're more unprepared than I'm comfortable with for when the fighting comes to American shores and American cities. I just I don't know. These days, there's so much stuff bleeding out of the Pentagon and out of you know CIA departments about how there is legitimate, credible evidence that the aliens are already here. How, how are we not motivated? How have we not moved our society closer towards a state of total war? How has the economy not shifted to producing only military necessities? How is anyone working in a service industry not fired immediately and put into a factory producing space-age weapons designed by Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. I frankly think that if you're not working for Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk right now, you should be put into jail. You should be contracted into mines to pull lithium and other necessary metals out of the earth for the coming fight. And I, I mean, I understand that like the, the world has been changing in that direction over the past 20 years or so, we've really kind of pushed our society towards, you know, chattel slavery um, for your wages and for shitty living conditions that only keep you alive and, and not much more. But I really don't think it's been quick enough. We should be producing more pharmaceutical drugs that allow people to not throw themselves off of buildings when they start to lose interest in their munition-producing job or their, you know, spacecraft, spacesuit-producing job that they're inevitably going to have. And, and I, I really think we should be isolating ourselves more to combat the potential for aliens to take over the bodies of humans and infiltrate our society that way. We've already isolated people to a pretty staggering level. This is probably the only voice you've heard that hasn't been someone you live with in, you know, weeks or, or months at this point. I, I, I don't know. I, we've done a lot of great work in dismantling society for the greater good, as in how do we fight the aliens? But I think we need to do more. We really need to have more people follow in the footsteps of the great leaders of our time, a la Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. The, like, if you really look at it objectively, these are the only two people, and maybe his, his royalty or whatever, Sir Richard Branson, those three dudes are pretty much the only people who are legitimately looking towards the future. They obviously know that the aliens are here, and that it's not worth it to spend any money on fixing the humanitarian crises that, that really face the planet today. That, that's chump change when you really get down to it. There's no point to be doing you know, work to, to get water to you know, the millions of people who don't have clean drinking water today. What is the point at the end of the day? We should be rapidly turning humanity into a space-faring species. In, in 20 years, if you aren't working for Amazon or Tesla, I don't believe that you should be able to eat food or live in a house. They know that holding your livelihood hostage will be the best way that they can motivate you to join the fight against this impending alien threat. And I just want to figure out the best way that we can support these wonderful individuals. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about was, uh, have, have y'all ever, you know, you've been living at your parents' house and you, you saw a closed door and you just, you happened to actually open it when you know you shouldn't have opened it. Like doors have locks and there's a good reason for that. Sometimes you're, I mean, even if it's not necessarily like you, you shouldn't go into that room ever, you definitely shouldn't go into that room all the time. And when I was in high school, 
I, uh, I happened to actually walk in on my parents doing the deed. Pretty, it's a pretty common occurrence. Uh, you know, like you've definitely heard of people walking on their parents before. This isn't an unheard of thing, but it just, it, it's definitely a memorable moment for me. And I walked in, I was just trying to say, Hey, I'm going to go over to my girlfriend's house, probably trying to do the exact same thing. And my parents' door was shut. It has a lock, but it was not being used at the time. I So, mistakes were made on both parts. Obviously, locked door, it's their bedroom. I should have knocked, and that probably would have been the end of it. You know, albeit a, a pretty awkward knock, no doubt. But it would have been a lot less awkward than what actually happened. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I opened the door and I was like, oh shit. And I pretty quickly shut it and darted out to my truck and was out the driveway and about to put it in drive to, to bolt out of there, bolt off the street. When my dad, you know, comes running out from the front door and it was like a cartoon. This dude is, is, is still you know, fixing up his belt on his pants as he's bolting out of the house. And uh, he just comes up to my window and he's like, you know, what did you expect your mom and I to stop? And I was like, well, I mean, I don't know, you're old. But, you know, he's 40 years older than me. So he's probably like 55 at the time or, or, you know, and I guess not 55. He's like almost 60 at the time. And, uh, you know... at the end of the day, I don't know if it was a, a totally bad thing. As weird as that sounds. I think that my, my dad and I's relationship got markedly better after that experience. And it could have been a number of things. It could have just been that I was older. You know, a, a, after that point, I, you know, everybody's relationship, I think... Pretty universally, or maybe maybe not universally, but in in large part, people's relationships with their parents gets better as you kind of get older, and they like are less just your parent, and they're more like your friend or like a you know colleague or whatever, going through life, dealing with shit. But my relationship with my dad got a lot better after that. I mean, maybe it was just like subconsciously, I was like, this dude fucks, like you know, this is. This dude can handle himself. Or I don't know, you know. I saw him more in a different light, in a different light than just my dad. I was like, this dude is a guy. This, the, You know, my parents are just people. My parents are out there just, you know, being themselves. Also, I've always had this question. Because people always talk about, you know, like medicinal marijuana and how, you know it should really be treated more as a medicine or it has, it has at least medicinal qualities or beneficial qualities. And and one of the things they really cite is like, why is everybody on, you know, pain medications or, or, or anxiety or depression medications when they could just, you know, consume a little THC and, and they'll be all right. But my real question is, does, you know, the anxiolytic properties of, of marijuana or of cannabis can be using that outdated racial term these days. Um, does the does the anxiety reducing properties of cannabis last beyond your high? Like obviously, when you're high, you probably don't. Have, I mean, unless you know, there are cases, of course, where people like smoke weed or whatever, take an edible, and they just like have a full blown you know fucking panic attack, but does the anxiety-reducing properties exist, you know, after you're high? Like, you know, oh, Jimmy, uh, you know, smoked some weed on Tuesday, and, and he's been telling me that he hasn't had any anxiety for the rest of the week. Like, is that how that shit works? Because, I mean, if it's just like, oh, yeah, Jimmy is high, or I'm high right now, I, I don't really feel a lot of anxiety. I don't really feel, like, you know, a lot of depression or pain or whatever or my, my appetite's gone through the roof, like, yeah, that's just being high. I mean, 
if that was the case for like everything, it's like, oh yeah, man, I really, I, my self-esteem is so much better after I've been consuming alcohol. You know, it doesn't necessarily last the, the following day, but while I'm shit-faced, I, God, I feel great. My, my back pain is reduced. My anxiety is gone, almost gone. Uh, I'm so much more personable, social, extroverted. You know, alcohol is just amazing. Or like, what if that was the case with like other shits? Like, you know, I really have a problem with my anxiety. I feel like, you know, all the time there's just this sense of impending doom. But when I'm strangling kittens, I got it just all goes away. It's just, it's just spectacular. I just feel so much better. I just, uh, you know, the world has a different tint to it. It's just everything is so much brighter and, and, and more engaging but it's only in the act. It never really persists after I'm finished. Is that like a, you know? Is that the case with weed, where it's just like uh, only during and not following? Because then I'm I'm a little hesitant to say that you know uh, cannabis reduces your anxiety rather than being high reduces your anxiety or being high increases your appetite. Unless it's like, yeah, I got this one treatment. Like people talk about like psychoactive drugs and they'll be like, oh yeah, after uh, one dose or one, one treatment session with like psilocybin, uh, your, your thoughts about death or your, uh, you know, people talk about like ego dissolution or like, you know, you can do ketamine therapy. It's like a, you know, actively prescribed thing today. And... The depression-reducing effects of ketamine therapy persist beyond just the high, which I, I don't know if that's how it works with weed. And if it's not the case, it would be ridiculous to be like, yeah, man, when I'm in a freaking deep K-hole and I, you know, my eyes don't work anymore and I'm, I'm just seeing, you know, visual hallucinations the whole time. Uh, you know, I really feel a lot better. My depression really isn't that bad. But the second I get out of it, I, I go into a freaking deep existential depression and I'm, you know, contemplating suicide actively. But when I'm in the K-hole, bliss. Everything is... And that's just like, well, yeah, you're a crackhead at that point. You know, why don't... Like, if, if your entire existence has to, to you know, revolve around... You only feel good while you're heavily under the influence of drugs. Like that is, I, I, I don't know if that's a sustainable way to live. Maybe it is, but that just makes me think that almost anything, if it, you know, causes a little bit of relief in the act, uh, wouldn't that be like equally as medicinal as ketamine or as cannabis? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Moving on, though, uh, I just wanted to bring up the topic of, and it's a bit touchy, <clears throat> of eugenics, but not in, like, a Hitlery way. Like, modern day, people talk about, like, well, what if we just clipped out the gene that caused Huntington's disease? What if we just clipped out, uh, you know, a gene that causes blindness or some shit? And I've gotten a little bit of resistance uh, personally from, like, what if you could just, like, figure out the genetic uh, foundations for, like, deafness and you just clipped out people being deaf and that was just the end of deafness for humans? And there's been some concerns like, well, you know, the deaf community is a pretty proud community and they don't necessarily think that their life is any worse being deaf or like any less fulfilled being deaf than, you know, a, a hearing person's life. But it's just like if you could, if you had a child and you, they were born deaf and you gave them a surgery or like a zero risk. Cause people always bring up like, Oh yeah, well surgery always has its risk. It's like, well relax. Okay. This is kind of just, there's no like perfect fix for deafness currently. I mean, cochlear implants do a lot of work, but there's no perfect fix 
for just being deaf uh, in a lot of cases. And so it's just like, can it, it, is it a bad thing to get rid of like random genetic, uh, you know, variabilities that are like really detrimental to people's lives? Like for me personally, I've always had the, the wonder how long would it take to breed attached earlobes uh, out of humanity? Because I just fucking hate them. How long, how long would it take for us to just, I mean, it, you know, it's not that common, but like Jesus Christ, it, it, it looks obscene to say the least. And I mean, there's no way that those people, it's like a little pocket on their head. There's no way that those people are cleaning behind their ears to a sufficient degree. I mean, that, that shit probably just festers back there. And it's just like a bacterial uh, cesspool living on their face. I just don't get how we've really allowed humans to just have attached earlobes for this long. We should really just be like excising that from humanity. And I really don't think it would take all that long. I mean, you know, you either, you either uh, sterilize people that have attached earlobes and don't, you know, don't allow them to breed. They still have children. You can adopt some regular earlobed children, God's children more like. And I really don't think it would take all that long to just get rid of attached earlobes in general. Or, or like... If you would like to keep living and you have attached earlobes, just get this surgery. I'm sure it's a pretty simple, a plastic surgeon could do that in like five minutes. Uh, just clip the attached earlobe. I mean, it's unsightly. It's disgusting. And I think uh, people would be more attractive in general if they didn't have attached earlobes. I mean, this is the same argument people use for circumcision, you know, it's, it's customary at this point in a lot of... Cult, I mean, I don't know a lot of... Fuck, what am I talking about? In fucking American culture, for white people specifically, uh, circumcision is more or less the norm. I've seen a lot of uh, Latin American people refuse circumcision for their children, at least in hospitals that I've been in. And that's understandable. But the same argument for circumcision, it's, it's customary at this point. People often say it's hygienic or it reduces risk of STD transmission. Uh, a lot of women think it's unsightly to be uncircumcised. Fuck all that. That's fucking ridiculous. If you can say that the dick should be circumcised, then I can say that attached earlobes should be removed from the population. Cleansed. Maybe is probably the better word from the population. But beyond just attached earlobes, are there other things that we can get rid of without looking like or sounding like we're trying to be Hitler? Like, frankly, I think that Hitler really fucked up the whole eugenics talk, the eugenics discussion. Like, what if you had, with like a vaccination discussion, what if you had, you know, Bill Gates and he was like, I want to vaccinate all of Africa, I want to research a vaccine for all of Africa against uh, malaria. And I want to prevent, I want to, you know, eliminate human beings getting and dying from malaria for the rest of time by researching and developing a vaccine against malaria. But his motivation, I mean, that would be like a really noble idea. Uh, you'd save millions of lives um, you'd help a really impoverished, you know, part of humanity that's had to suffer with this terrible disease for thousands of years or, or hundreds of thousands of years, whatever the fucking long it's been for malaria. And I mean, you'd probably reduce the number of sickle cell anemia as well because the, of the heterozygous advantage of having, uh, you know, half of the gen genetic material to have sickle cell, you, you're much less likely to get malaria but what if his motivation for all of this was because he thought their lives were so fucking terrible that he wanted to keep them around, keep them living, keep them suffering on this earth for a little bit longer? 
and you were like, holy shit, Bill Gates, your motivation for this vaccine is goddamn terrible. And I cannot believe that you want to do this for that motivation. Pretty spectacular feat. You know, wiping malaria off the face of the earth would be a miracle, to say the least. But if that was the motivation, that might fuck up the whole discussion for, for why you want to do it. And I feel like almost that's the same thing that's happened with a eugenics discussion and Hitler. He really butchered the whole thing by wanting this, like, ethnic cleansing to make a super race of humans. And, I mean, yeah, obviously we shouldn't flatten out humanity where we're all the same and there's not a lot of genetic variability. But if somebody starts throwing around the eugenics word whenever you're talking about eliminating Huntington's or eliminating Alzheimer's or some shit, I don't know if that would necessarily be fair. You can't just start calling that shit eugenics and... uh Start calling people Hitler who, who, who want to try to do something like that. Or at least you can, but I don't think it should be given any credence. Um, but, I mean, you start running into issues. Is it necessarily eugenics if you have, you're doing like in vitro fertilization or something like that. And you have 10 embryos and we do some genetic testing on those 10 embryos and we're like, Hey, which one do you want to implant? Nine of these are perfectly healthy. They won't have Huntington's. They won't have um, a litany of other diseases or like uh, hereditary diseases. But one of them has Down syndrome. Would you implant the embryo that has Down syndrome? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there'd be like a, a certain requirement of... of of people to to have that that embryo implanted like a certain percentage of the population it's like well you, you know you gotta there's been some advocacy groups there's been some lobbying by the down syndrome lobby and their way of life their culture their existence is potentially in peril because of uh you know modern genetic advancement that we we kind of think that we need to do something about that they've lobbied us to try to do something about that but like, Jesus Christ, is that eugenics? You're obviously making human beings better through technological advancement, but haven't we been doing that for thousands of years? Isn't a spoon some technology to make human existence a little bit better? I mean, isn't, isn't Elon Musk's Neuralink some technology to make human existence a little bit better? Can we not expand this to maybe making me... Uh, a 6'5", you know, Thor-like looking motherfucker that, you know, is immune to cancer. I would like that. I think people would be... Like, if there are more hot people in the world, I don't think hot people get less hot. Like, you don't need... You don't need some, like, ugly motherfucker next to, like, a supermodel... To be like, oh yeah, that supermodel is actually good looking. You can see that person in isolation and be like, god damn, that's a good looking human. Whatever they've been doing, whatever, you know, ridiculous workout method or thousands of dollars of, you know, effort spent on looking like that or a lifetime of effort to look like that, that is appreciated. And I don't need some horrendous looking human being to make me realize that. So I don't, I don't necessarily know if I agree with, yeah, if we just make everybody look, just everybody look perfect, that we'll run into a bunch of issues and we really won't appreciate what we have. I, I don't know if that's going to be the case. But moving on, um, I'm hearing that to combat some of the stagnating vaccination rates in... Uh, certain parts of the country, they've decided to release some new scientific data that they were kind of holding on to that actually shows uh, SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, it's caused all this hullabaloo uh, over the past year or so. It actually 
if, if you get infected, it actually can give you autism. And they're, they're releasing this data to kind of spur along some people who have been hesitant to take the vaccine uh, just to show how important it really is to, to, to get vaccinated, to get this pandemic under control, just to save the population from not, not just death, you know, that was already a concern for a long time now, but really to save the country from just more autism. And I know what you might be thinking, if you're in this camp and you really need to be convinced at this point, you might say to yourself, now, wouldn't a vaccine give me autism or, or give my child autism? And now, that may be the case on occasion, but, but more often than not, you actually have a higher risk uh, of autism in general just from contracting COVID. Um, and then in addition, they're also releasing a vaccine against autism itself. It's a, it's a kind of a beautiful double you know, whammy setup. And really, the this, this second vaccine is not really a vaccine against autism per se. It's more of a determiner of whether or not you were ever going to get autism. You know, they, they bring you in, they give you this shot, um, and you either get autism immediately, and you'll, you know, now either I was going to get autism, and this has just solidified that, or you receive the shot, and you're totally, you're totally the same as you were when you walked in. And you can think, you know, breathe a sigh of relief. Ah, I was, I was never at risk. I, I hadn't, you know, this has, this has protected me from any future bouts with autism. And I'm, I'm free and in the clear. It's a pretty, pretty marvelous piece of technology. But it's, uh, it's only going to be available in the coming months. So I would definitely look into that. But it just kind of strikes me how afraid it seems so many people are of just autism in general. I don't understand how autism really became this, you know, boogeyman that people would risk death over, you know? It was like, would I really, would I rather contract some kind of disease, which, I mean, like polio or some shit where it's like, there's a decent chance you just die. And if you don't die, you're in like an iron lung or your legs don't work or something crazy like that. They would rather risk a life-threatening illness like that rather than this imaginary, imaginary, like, you know, susceptibility to autism. I, I just, I've never understood it. I don't, I think there are, like, autism is really not all that bad. I mean, overall, I, I, obviously it comes with its pros and its cons. The cons are, you know, pretty large. And I'm sure the people that live with autism on a daily basis, like, they wouldn't mind if there was a cure for autism. But I also don't necessarily think that there's, like, it's like a super, I mean, it's like the same thing. There's a very, you know, vocal community pardon the pun, a, a, a enthusiastic community of deaf people who don't necessarily think that a cochlear implant or something like that should be given to somebody without their, I mean, not obviously without their consent, but like, you're not going to, you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't be pursuing a cure for deafness. I, I don't necessarily know if there's a similar kind of community within the autistic community where it's like, you shouldn't be we don't necessarily need a cure for autism because, you know, potentially just like the, the deaf community, they don't necessarily see their life as, you know, hampered or, or you know, horribly worse than a, than a hearing person's life. They just see it as different. And I mean, I understand to a certain extent that view, you know, we all shouldn't necessarily be the same exact people we all sh shouldn't but I, I, I don't know 
there, I, I just, especially in this day and age, it almost seems like autism might be the, the next step in, in humanity. I mean, post-pandemic, how technologically isolated everybody has become, you know, we all just communicate pretty exclusively through screens where it's safe and where we should stay. Um, having a little tinge of autism might not, might not be all that bad. I mean, you're, you're probably going to be more successful in like a technological field. I don't know. Maybe if you get a little bit of coaching for an interview, like a job interview or something like that, you're going to be pretty much all right. So I, I don't know. I, I have just known, you know, so many very successful autistic people. Or if you're just on the spectrum a little bit, and I know we're all on, on, on one spectrum or another, but it just seems like if you're on the spectrum a little bit, there's, there's some pros and some cons, you know, pretty undeniable that there's some pros and some cons. But anyway, all I'm saying is if you don't want autism, if that is something that you are interested in not having I would suggest, based on this new research that's coming out, going and getting the COVID vaccine to protect yourself and and your children and your community from the threat that is autism. But on to to other matters. Um, I I really just wanted to, to, to speak to one thing that's pretty central to humanity you know, since its beginning, I mean, all things really, is how do you make more people? How do you make more, you know, elephants? How do you make more, you know, bacteria? How do you make more of any living thing? You gotta, you know, typically, you gotta make babies. And humans have been making babies the same way for thousands of years. And it just strikes me, how in the world have we not figured out a better way to do this? I mean, there have obviously been improvements here and there. We've got the C-section whenever, you know, a pregnancy becomes complicated. But just the production, a woman getting pregnant these days is literally just, typically it's just some dude blowing his load in a woman or some woman receiving a load from a dude. I mean, so rarely is it a fully intentional you know, pregnancy. It's just like, yeah, we're trying for a baby, but yeah, maybe one of these nights things will work out. Maybe one of these afternoon delights will produce something prolific. But I just, how in the world does a human life not deserve a little bit more intentionality than that? How is the creation of human life not gotten to a point where it's like, yeah, we figured it out. If you want a baby and you want it to be, you know, half this person and half that person, we can do it. We can do it perfectly when you want it. We will know exactly how everything goes. I just don't understand. I frankly believe that this should become a more normalized thing, a, a, a greater concern to the medical community that there really shouldn't be accidental pregnancies anymore. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, uh, abstinence only throughout all of you know, high school and college and up until you've, you've gotten to the point in your life when you really think that you're at the life stage to, to handle a child. What the fuck is that? No, I have been an advocate for this for many years now, but I believe... I mean, personally, I wish I was given this choice when I was 18 to just get a vasectomy. Take the venom out the snake early. Frankly, it it should potentially be mandated or, or at least maybe not mandated, offered to all males or those who produce sperm that you should be able to get, I mean, even, even women potentially, I don't know. Obviously, this all gets really complicated when you really break it down. But you should be able to, like, surgically lose the ability to produce children, a la vasectomy, at 
a pubescent stage or later. Like if, if my dad sat me down at 18 years old and he was like, hey, I got this great offer for you if you're interested. You go put a couple of swimmers in a cup. We'll put it in the back of the fridge. Leave it there until you're ready. And you can go get a vasectomy today. And I mean, really all you got to worry about at that point, I mean, the only reason that the condom industry would be around is just for STDs. The birth control out the window. What's the point? Maybe a, a woman wants to, to get some birth control just to regulate her flow. I know that's a, a pretty common usage of birth control, but it's like no need to have that, that shit up to a high enough dose to really affect, um, you know, implantation or anything like that. Let's just, let's just completely stop uh, unwanted pregnancies. Let's bring a little bit more, um, you know, autonomy and agency to people trying to produce children. If my dad sat me down, and, and frankly, I wouldn't have minded this, and I might honestly still do this to this day. Just get a vasectomy now. And, and for personally, for me, I would like to have a child. I would, not, I would like to not be able to have a child until I am in a financial situation where I could afford IVF. Or, I mean, you know, if this is in like 10 or 20 years, maybe they've got a, uh, a cheaper alternative or, you know, I can just roll the dice with a turkey based or what have you. But I really don't think it would be that bad of an idea to only be able to, at least for personally, only be able to produce children once I am financially stable enough to be able to afford some kind of artificial insemination. And this, this obviously might run into issues if, if you really expand this to kind of like a nationwide scale. Obviously, this wouldn't be able to be some kind of mandate, but just like an opt-in, an opt-in government program. I don't see how this thing doesn't pay for itself within 10 years, maybe even less. Eliminate all unwanted pregnancies. Eliminate women having to, you know, birth control being like a real option of, uh, you know, planning your, your, I mean, planned parenthood, I guess. I wouldn't even be surprised if planned parenthood and the pharmaceutical industries that produce birth control or, I mean, this, I've heard, I've heard rumblings of potentially a male birth control coming out in the near future. Those companies would go out of business so fast. If you just, and yeah, the surgeons would go through the roof, but the, a vasectomy is a pretty simple procedure all in all. You could, you could just eliminate women having to take hormones every day, taking a pill every day as their preferred, preferred form of birth control. You just eliminate that, in, that entire process, that entire industry in lieu of dudes just getting vasectomies when they want. I don't I don't see how that is a top to bottom win. And yeah, I mean, even if you really wanted to produce a child like the natural way, there's a pretty high success rate on reversing a vasectomy. So just why can't there be a government program just like this? I think that the government frankly should have a larger role in reproductive rights. How is that not the case? How do we not have a well-funded governmental program that will give those who opt into it vasectomies? That just seems like, I mean, if we want to expand medical care to cover, you know, dental and eye procedures, I mean, you know, there's, there's been some talks of like Medicare expansion and stuff like that. If we just did, you know, Medicare for all and happened to include a program for free vasectomies, I don't see how that wouldn't be the most fiscally responsible decision you could make. But anyway, moving on, moving on to more radical ideas, more pressing matters that... I think really 
shaped the United States at large. How, how do we reinstate the United States population's fear of the Middle East? I know what you're thinking. You know, we've been in a war with a couple of countries in the Middle East for 20 years now. Uh, President Joe Biden is currently planning on, you know, removing all troops um, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And it just makes me nervous. I mean, most of my life I have lived with war in the Middle East. And it's really been a guiding principle for much of the country. And I, I just get worried. There just seems something so intrinsically American about a fear of the Arab world. Like if you told most people, yeah, modern day math is built off of, uh, you know, intellectual work done by Arabic thinkers, I think they would shit their pants. I think they would hate math more than they already do. Like algebra, that... I don't know how that is taught in American schools. I don't understand it. I think there's something so unifying about a fear of the Middle East that I don't really see this country surviving without that fear. How do we, how do we reinstate this fear if we're not at war with them? I mean, we had, we had, we've had a rotating selection of extremist groups within the Middle East that have really carried the banner for us. And I don't even blame the United States government for supporting some of these groups. It, it really just seems like not only one of the most American things that you can do, but also it's supporting the U.S. economy, the, the mental state of a lot of the citizens of the United States. It, it just seems so intrinsically important. And we've, you know, we've had other boogeymen. Obviously, China um, is quite the boogeyman these days. And Russia, for a real long time, they definitely play their part currently, especially in, like, online attacks. That's, like, a huge thing for the Russians and the Chinese. And I, I'm, I'm kind of of the school of thought that potentially China isn't as much of a boogeyman as it maybe should be. They're, they're doing some pretty fucked up noise in, in China as we speak and as you listen to this. I don't understand how a modern day genocide is not getting more attention. I mean, I understand it. I understand China's role and their position in the, you know, global ecosystem. But Jesus Christ... I don't know. I, I just, if we can't have legitimate unification and legitimate mobilization of United States efforts against a modern day genocide in China, it just makes me think even more that the United States really doesn't come together unless it is fear of the Middle East. That just seems like the one thing that I've learned in my lifetime. We, we come together, we become one nation under fear of people who live in sand. One nation that doesn't understand a, a, an area of the globe that has been tribal since its beginning. I mean, it's had, it's had stents of control under, you know, empires and shit like that. Don't correct me on this. But we just don't understand these people and we believe that they don't understand us at all and they hate our way of life and that's become such a unifying principle of the United States. And I really just don't... I just don't see how the United States can really exist without this fear. Or, I mean, at least we're not going to exist in our most optimal state. We're not going to... It's not going to be the best form of the United States without this unifying fear of the Middle East. I mean, there have been other things that have tried. You know, uh, immigrants from Mexico. Nobody agrees on that. Immigrants from Asia, other parts of the world. Nobody agrees on that. 
uh, the war on drugs. Nobody agrees on that. Should we legalize all drugs? Should we continue to let you know multi-billion dollar corporations um, produce opioids that are ravaging so many parts of the United States? Should we continue to allow the CIA to import drugs from various countries to destabilize uh, you know, inner city communities and also prop up uh, political leaders that they have interests in, in in other countries. Nobody agrees on any of that. Um, I mean, is it really... Like, do we just need to, need to just decide that Putin is the biggest enemy that we can have and, and, and just mount a unifying, uh, you know, fear-mongering campaign? I don't know. And we've had this pandemic... So much controversy, you know, unsurprisingly around this pandemic. But even that we haven't been able to agree upon. There's been no unification of the country. No one nation produced by a global pandemic. And that, that, that again reinforces this idea that the Middle East is, is the fear that we need. I don't, if, if it comes out one day that this this you know emerging theory that china you know intentionally or accidentally produced covid-19 that could that could have some kind of implications on a fear that we need as a unifying force but i'm skeptical is there some way that we could have the next pandemic be produced by the Middle East? Is there some way that, you know, people who don't have a functioning scientific community could produce a, a virus or bacteria or parasite, what have you, misfolded protein, I don't know, that brings the world economy to its knees. Why, why can't that be the case? Do you know how fast the United States economy, do you know how fast the, the, the citizens of the United States would rally together to defeat a threat like that? It really is the fear that we need. And I, I just don't know how, how the United States is going to function without, without such a fear.